Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the media thinks the Canada flag is controversial, why diversity becomes tokenism, and the importance of self-defense. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. We are going to have a, a little bit of a, a mini Canada Day show on Canada Day itself, but this will be the pre-Canada Day edition of the program, the penultimate show before we once again celebrate Canada's birthday. And along that vein, I, I've got to talk about this just abysmal story in the Chronicle Herald. It's not even really a story. It's like a, a blurb heard around the world, where the Chronicle Herald, which is the, the newspaper record in Halifax, decided to give people a trigger warning that a Canadian flag was going to be appearing in the paper. This is something that, again, in the lead up to Canada Day, the Chronicle Herald had a little Canada flag that people could cut out and tape on their windows. I don't know why you need to do that in 2020, but at the same time, people do. I've, I've driven around and, and seen these in the past. And what the paper says on the front page of the Saturday, June 27th edition, to our readers, inside today's edition on page A9, you'll find a Canadian flag to clip and post to help celebrate July 1st. We understand the flag doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. However, we hope our readers recognize their ability to play a role in shaping Canada's future is a freedom worth acknowledging. So what they've said here is that they effectively need to apologize to people for putting a Canada flag in the paper before Canada Day because the Canada flag doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. Now, this is what happens when publishers try to be woke and try to be hip to all of the social justice trends, especially in the last few weeks. They, they start bending over backwards to apologize for things that no one sensible is even offended by. And Incidentally, I have not seen, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I, I've not seen any or many people, actually I don't think I've seen any, respond to the Chronicle Herald's uh, blurb by saying, you know, I, I really appreciate this, the Canadian flag is troubling to me, thank you. The only response is mockery from people that say, you know, what the heck is going on? Now, I'm not a huge fan of the union or of, of the Canadian flag anyway, except insofar as, yes, I support that it is the flag. Like, as far as the design itself, I was a fan of the old red ensign. I know we had several ensigns, but I, I like the most recent one. And I would have been just as happy if we had that now. But in the absence of that, the Canadian flag is our national flag. And the Canadian flag is therefore a symbol of national pride. And to have the Canadian flag is a necessity if you are going to celebrate your country in the same way that you can't start changing national anthems because you don't like the country. So the people that don't like the Canadian flag actually just don't like Canada. And that's an important distinction because I've talked to people like this before. It's the people that have this, this just visceral hatred for this country because they think it's the byproduct of colonization and it's systemic racism and there's nothing good. And, and people that honestly do not see that a country can grow, can evolve, can develop. They think that Canada is just this horrible place. And the vast majority of these people are 
just so out there, so radical. They don't deserve to be given any sort of special treatment by way of a trigger warning of the Canadian flag. These people are not the norm. It's like what I've said in the past many times, Twitter is not real life. So, but, but now you have newspapers that are, are basically editorializing themselves into apologizing for the Canadian flag. And, and this is now, when it's on the front page of the paper, a, a statement that says, you know what, we think Canada is a bit controversial to people. And it almost voids the fact that they're putting the Canada flag in the paper in the first place. Because they are now apologizing for doing it, it, it kind of undercuts what I hoped would have been the point that they were uh, embracing, which was that, yes, this is a unifying symbol. It's unifying to have the national flag because everyone in Canada is a Canadian. This is a, a flag that should bond us, not divide us. But it's not your responsibility as someone who is proud of your country to apologize for other people who don't like your country, for even people who are in the country, who were born here, who have lived there their whole lived here their whole lives. Uh, a lot of these just you know SJW activist types are never going to like Canada. They're never going to be happy with the flag. They're never going to be happy with the country because they just do not see Canada as anything other than the worst caricature it could possibly be. And we're seeing this idea unfold as systemic racism becomes the term that everyone has to use. Everyone has to call something systemically racist. Everyone has to accept that Canada is systemically racist. And if you don't, then you're therefore racist. And this is something that we saw last week, and I, I won't spend too much time on it, but I, I spoke about it on True North Update with Candace Malcolm, a show that you should all uh, check out every Friday. But if you missed it, I'll, I'll share it here as well. Brenda Lucky, who is the RCMP commissioner, had a, at one point said, ah, you know, she doesn't think the RCMP is systemically racist. And then she must have gotten the memo from above that said, no, you can't say that. You have to say it's systemically racist. And she was a, a good foot soldier. She said, okay, I'm going to commit to the line. I'm going to say, yes, the RCMP is systemically racist. So what happened is Brenda Lucky was testifying before the House of Commons. Uh, she was speaking with uh, one mem member of Parliament, who's actually a liberal, who asked her, and, and she said that, yes, she's found a couple of examples where the RCMP is systemically racist. So then he asks the logical follow-up question, name one. And, well, this is what happened. I was also confused by your definition of systemic racism when this question was asked of you at the beginning of June. I sincerely uh, believe that people can change and we have to give them the opportunity to evolve, to change, so congratulations. But uh, to come back to Mrs. Michaud's question, I'd like to once again get your definition of systemic racism, because you said, and you've introduced um, a notion of length. Uh, you talked about uh, the history of the RCMP, and you recognize that there was systemic racism. Do you believe that there is systemic racism today in the RCMP? Thank you for your question, and, and first, thank you for your appreciation for our members, because it means a lot. Um, they're working hard each day in the communities that they serve in. Um, yes, there's absolutely systemic racism. I can give you a couple of examples that we've uh, found over the years. Uh, for example, um, we have a physical abilities a requirement evaluation. It's an obstacle course. Um, in there, um, there's a six-foot mat. 
uh, that you have to do a broad jump. And when we put uh, the uh, lens on it and reviewed that physical requirements test, um, evidence told us that the average person can broad jump their height. So, of course, how many six-foot people do we hire? And there are people in all different cultures that may not be six feet, including um, there's not a lot of women that are six feet tall. Um, that would not be able to get through that ex that type of test. Be systemic discrimination, but I'm trying to think of uh, systemic racism. Um, uh, in our, uh, the, we have some questions. For example, in our um, aptitude test, and you know what, I might refer uh, Gail because. Uh, that is uh, Gail's uh, specialty in the HR world because a lot of it has been uh, been brought out in our recruiting process. Uh, so uh, I'll ask Gail if she can. I mean, <laughs> okay. There's a part of me that finds this to be hilarious. Clearly, because she's trying to go through the motions. She's trying to be woke. She's trying to do the right thing by saying yes, the RCMP is systemically racist, and yes, Canada is, but she can't actually commit to that fully because she doesn't believe it. She doesn't actually have the evidence. Now, uh, you could say that the RCMP is systemically racist and that, you know, the RCMP commissioner doesn't know it, but then she shouldn't be saying it. She shouldn't be saying it so freely that she's presiding over a, a racist institution and a racist organization. She's saying this because she has to, and when she is pressed to come up with a reason why, she has to bucket to poor Gail in human resources. And I, I don't know what, uh, I mean, Gail didn't really give an answer all that much either, but uh, Brenda Lucky is the commissioner. Uh, so she says, yeah, yeah, we've got examples galore. Uh, and then what's the, the best thing she can come up with that some people are taller than others? Which, uh, again, as, as Mr. Fergus said, the MP, uh, yes, you can make a case that that's discrimination, but how is that racial discrimination? And by the way, I would say that if you are talking about police testing, police physical testing, this is the, the worst case to make about discrimination because the, the physicalities and the physical requirements of the job are not things that, that should change depending on the identity of, of whomever is going through the police thing. But anyway, I, if I don't know the answer to any question, I'm just going to send it over to Gail in HR. That's going to be my approach for the rest of the show and uh, perhaps even the rest of the year. Who knows? But this is what's happening now. You've got uh, companies, you've got government agencies, institutions that are, are just trying to survive. They're, they're just trying to get through the day without being called racist, without being canceled. And, and the buzzword now, you have to say that whatever you are doing, whatever you are running, whatever you are looking over, overseeing, is systemically racist. And if you don't, you're a racist. And this has become the uh, litmus test here that we talked about last week in the context of CBC acknowledging, yes, that they're now a racist institution. The RCMP has to as well. Justin Trudeau says Canada has systemic racism, which is particularly bad when he is the guy responsible for running the system itself. And on it goes, on it goes. And look, the point that I raise here is if you believe it, great. If you actually uh, believe this, go forth and have at it. Have whatever discussions, debates, dialogues you want. If you don't believe it, don't go along with it. But I understand why people do. Uh, look at what happened uh, a couple of weeks ago when Rex Murphy, the longtime National Post columnist, CBC personality, all of this, had said in a column a, a pretty sensible point that he did not think that there was systemic racism rampant in Canada. He concedes there's individual 
individual racism, that racist ideas exist, that there's racial history, but that he doesn't think Canada is, by and large, when you remove everything else, a racist country. And this started a coup, basically, in the National Post newsroom. You had reporters openly condemning him. And what happened here is Rex Murphy then ended up getting a trigger warning of sorts, an apology on his post, on his column, by the editors. An editor's note saying that it didn't meet their standards and yada, yada, yada. Uh, There was like some town hall with a a senior editor of National Post. Well, everyone just said, you know, how dare you publish this? And, And there was not only the death of ideas, the death of being able to debate and discuss things inherent in this, but also there was something very dangerous in that this becomes the position that now everyone must have. This has become one of these issues where if you don't have the right position, you don't get to be a part of society. And and this happened uh, last week with Conrad Black as well. Conrad's a, a great guy. I've met him a number of times, and I've interviewed him in the past. I should actually get him back on this show. He has a, a weekly spot every Friday, or had, as you'll learn in a moment, on Toronto's Global News Radio 640 Toronto on the John Oakley Show. And Conrad Black has been on that show every week for however many times. Two weeks ago, he was doing his appearance And as he reports in the National Post, ironically enough, uh, he said that Canada was not systemically racist. He says there are instances of racial discrimination, but that the overwhelming majority of Canadians are unprejudiced and equitable towards minorities. Now, as Conrad Black writes, a cabal apparently arose within chorus among the more belligerent adherents to the systemically racist view of Canada. And after a week of intense maneuver that I was unaware of, John Oakley called an hour before airtime and said he had been non-negotiably told to tell me that my radio visits with him were cancelled permanently. I received churlish tweets from Charles Adler, apparently still on air in Vancouver, uh, apparently one of the ringleaders of the putch against me. I will miss speaking with John, but my voice is not exactly stalled. I have two weekly national radio slots in the U.S. and four columns, yada, yada, yada. I'm sure chorus listeners will get on all right without me, but this is indicative of how absurd and nonsensical the public discussion on these issues has become, that to declare that Canada is not a racist country is itself judged to be a racist comment. And and I thought Conrad Black was very eloquent there, as he so often is. And I think there's a lot of truth in this idea right now, that if you take an issue that Canada is not a systemically racist country, you're just part of it. I mean, it's like a conspiracy theory. If you say the conspiracies not exist, you're 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 not existing. You are now a, a part of the conspiracy theory. And the thing with Conrad Black, when I tweeted a defense of him, I had a couple of people, including a global news reporter, say, well, you know, Conrad Black, uh, you know, is a privileged white man. He can't say that there's no systemic racism, to which I say all of that is irrelevant when we're talking about open inquiry and dialogue. Because in a civilized society that respects free speech, Conrad Black can be rebutted for saying that. Someone can say, well, actually, you from your position haven't experienced it. I have. Here's how I know what I know. Uh, And then that's the dialogue. And that used to be what talk radio was. I worked in talk radio for several years. I worked at Chorus. I've guest hosted on 640. That is what a, a good talk radio conversation is. Someone says one thing. Someone says another. The listeners can decide for themselves. And you don't even need to have both sides represented. I, I think you need to have whatever side the host thinks need to be needs to be heard. And in a culture where everyone is putting forward the Canada is systemically racist narrative, Conrad Black was actually the one giving the opposing side of this. 
But now he gets kicked off of a weekly radio segment, which again is the right of 640. It's the right of the station to do that, but that doesn't mean it is the right, the right decision to make. And this is a dangerous, dangerous trend where the whole point of having these dialogues is that everyone can come together and, and say, I think this, I think this, and, and maybe meet in the middle, maybe agree to disagree. But now if you don't go along with the idea that Canada is racist, you yourselves are racist, and that only proves that Canada is racist. And we're seeing this in, in every culture imaginable in every discussion. So the whole point of this is that now newspapers are apologizing for publishing Canadian flags because they think that these flags are therefore symbols of this very thing that everyone is so terrified to say doesn't exist. And again, you, you can say that uh, you don't think Rex Murphy as a privileged white guy should talk about racism. You can say you don't think Conrad Black should. You can say all of these things, but that does not negate the dangerous thought crime mentality that's being completely furthered in media, in, uh, in academia, just in, in civil society at large here. Uh, and it's not going to end well. In fact, we're, we're seeing it. I don't even know if it's going to end right now. I do not know if it's going to end at this point when anything and everything is racist, when if you say the wrong thing, you're gone. Take a look, by the way, at this story out of the UK, where Graham Linehan, who's a comedy writer, has been permanently banned from Twitter, and his crime was saying men aren't women. That was what he did. On Twitter, he said men aren't women. He was referring to uh, the trans issue. Uh, Twitter has closed Linehan's comment, and this is a guy who's a fairly, fairly well-respected uh, writer in, in the entertainment world in, in uh, well, not, if he's Irish, not the UK, but you know what I mean. Uh, but what happened is uh, he had said it in a response from uh, to a tweet from the Women's Institute wishing their transgender members a happy pride. And he was a bit of a troll. He said, men aren't women, though. Uh, and then a, a whole bunch of people started uh, piling on like they did with J.K. Rowling. And uh, before you know it, Twitter has uh, put it down there and used their hate speech provisions because on Twitter, if you so much uh, use the wrong pronouns for someone, your account can be permanently banned. I, I know my colleague Lindsay Shepard has had her account taken offline for scrapping with a, a transgender activist in the past. And, and this is what's happening. And, and this is why people are fleeing Twitter at, at this point in, in large numbers. Uh, there's this new uh, website that's popped up called Parler, which at first I was like thinking it was all French and I was like, oh, parlay. No, it's parlor, like a, a room. And it, it started by conservatives. It, it's a, a free speech platform. That's the basis of it. They say it's unbiased. There's no algorithm uh, to it that's deciding who gets seen and, and who doesn't. Now, I will say I, I signed up for parlor last week just to check it out. So if you want to follow me over there, at Andrew Lawton is my, my username. I don't know how long I'm going to be on there. I, I've seen some uh, concerning things that have popped up with like user security and also with uh, aspects of the experience, like the, the litigation aspects, there are some stuff, and I, I might do a, a deeper dive into it later on. So I, I'm not endorsing Parler, but I am saying that it's unsurprising that everyone's fleeing right now. And it actually proves the point that I made a couple of weeks ago when I, I talked about big tech censorship. And I, I said the answer to this is for someone else to start a, a Twitter, for someone else to start a Facebook. And uh, everyone said, oh, no, 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 but these companies have a, a monopoly or an oligopoly. And what Parler 
Parler's doing has proved that that is not, in fact, the case. That if you get some venture capital behind you, uh, you can do it. And, and right now, it's it's overwhelmingly a conservative platform. That's their target audience. So my concern would always be you don't want it to become an, an echo chamber of sorts. But I also think if conservatives are tired of getting shadow banned, trying to get their tired of getting their accounts canceled for uh, saying men are women or men aren't women or whatever, or uh, who knows, maybe they'll start banning accounts for people who say that systemic racism isn't a thing. I don't blame people for wanting to find an alternative where their social media platform that they use, even if they're not paying for it, is actually a, a platform that they don't feel is going to censor them or shut them down. So that's where this thing is headed, and it's not going to be pretty right now. It's not pretty. Everyone is facing uh, the mob. Everyone is facing mob justice, and quite frankly, uh, this is not going to change unless people start pushing back against it. And there was at Wilfrid Laurier University a, a case of this happening, and I'm going to talk about it in a bit more depth on uh, Wednesday's show because I'm actually going to be speaking with David Haskell who is one of the two professors behind this. But I'll, I'll give you a glimpse of it now because it has happened in the last couple of days. There was a letter that was put forward by two Laurier University professors who love free speech, great gentlemen, David Haskell and William McNally, and they were pushing back against the president of Laurier, Deborah McClatchy, who, speaking of Lindsay Shepard, was the one that uh, presided over uh, Lindsay Shepard's uh, just horrific treatment at the hands of, of her school's diversity office. And, and McClatchy has said that Laurier is, uh, like anything else, systemically racist, and they've pushed back against that. That and wrote a, a letter, a very brave letter, that are saying, listen, we're, we're social scientists, we are employed at Laurier to research and teach, we're here to think independently, and we are not uh, in experts in race relations. However, we noticed that your message employed a concept from critical race theory called systemic racism. This concerns us for a number of reasons, particularly the impact it will have on academic freedom at Wilfrid Laurier University. And they, they go for the biggest thing here is that they say that uh, Laurier has systemic racism issues, but they don't define racism. And they do this while suggesting an action plan on something they haven't defined. And we may all say that, oh, well, we know what racism is. But when you start talking about systemic racism, which is supposed to be racism so bad that even if no one is racist, the system itself will continue to be. If you're going to put a charge like that forward, you better have a solid definition. Otherwise, it's just like Islamophobia. It's just like all of these terms that are used that sound a certain way that are used to justify oftentimes things that criticize free speech, things that curb rights, th things that are used to malign people without really having a, a solid foundation for what is at stake. So good for these professors for pushing back and doing it in a public way. We'll talk about it a bit more on Wednesday, but I, I wanted to tell you I had seen it and that we are going to uh, focus on it a bit more. When we come back in just a couple of moments, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, and we are living in crazy times. Uh, I would say that we never want to do anything so drastic that we will never be able to reclaim what was lost. Uh, you know, tear down all the statues you want, but do not do this. Activists are wanting to get the national anthem changed to John Lennon's Imagine. 
Yes, this is a story in the New York Post. A historian, Daniel Walker, author Kevin Powell, and others are calling to, quote, rethink the Star-Spangled Banner as the national anthem because this is about the deep-seated legacy of slavery and white supremacy in America. So uh, the song, which was uh, originally a poem written in 1814 by Francis Scott Key, who himself was a a slave owner, was later set to music and became the country's national anthem in 1931. And ultimately, they left out the third verse, which mentions a slave. So yes, there is a a history there. Uh, However, because they're arguing the song is, quote, problematic, unquote, uh, I'm tending to just uh, count it out like everything else that we're told is problematic, like uh, L'Oreal Skin Whitening Cream, which is now going the way of the dodo bird, or all of these other things like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben and Eskimo Pies and these things. So uh, they're all problematic. That's that's the word uh, that they use. So they're They're trying to get it up, and uh, they were trying to figure out what to replace it with. So Powell argues, why not replace it with Imagine? Because it's, quote, the most beautiful, unifying, all people, all backgrounds together kind of song you could have, unquote. Uh, And they point to the fact in the story that a a soccer club in Kansas has already done away with a Star Spangled Banner and replaced it with This Land is Your Land. That's now the uh, national anthem. Uh, Why not uh, go... (laughs) Why not go Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus, someone else suggested. I Look, if you're going to be uh, getting rid of everything, then why not? I mean, Lady Antebellum is now Lady A. Dixie Chicks is now The Chicks. Now, that, that'll be changed because it's sexist later on, or it's cis-heteronormative cis or, or something like that. But uh, you, you've got uh, Splash Mountains being changed because Splash Mountain at Disney uh, was originally uh, something that had themes from Song of the South. So if nothing has survived, I mean, this is where we were talking earlier on in the program, I think a couple of weeks ago, about how nothing is going to be left. They're creating these voids, creating these holds, creating these empty foundations that statues once stood on, but are creating nothing in it. Now, I don't think this is a serious suggestion, but the fact that the people that are making suggestions like these are taken seriously is itself part of the issue here. Uh, And let's be real. Imagine is unifying only in that it tends to unify everyone together in hating it. I mean, you could say Nickelback is unifying in the same way because everyone just hates it together as one. Uh, But Imagine also is a British song. So the idea of taking a British song and making that your national anthem uh, is flawed. And it's just a, a terribly obnoxious song. I mean, why not We Are the World? Why not abolish national anthems? So why not abolish countries? Because this country's racist, that country's racist, this flag is problematic, that flag is. Uh, this is what people are headed towards. Because no one can withstand the scrutiny of 2020 that the activists are putting on. Certainly no one from 1776 or in Canada's case, 1867. No one can withstand this scrutiny. So we're heading towards having to just cancel an entire country because, oh, well, uh, the country had a problematic past. Ergo, it it doesn't get to be a country anymore. That's going to be where things headed. So I'm I'm fascinated that all of these people that would have been seen as radical and fringe a few years ago today are not just seen as mainstream, but mainstream voices are completely capitulating and bending the knee. And in some cases, when it comes to corporations, this is just done out of fear. Uh, like this story I mentioned with L'Oreal, they're removing words like whitening and fair from its products. And the, the rationale is that uh, they don't want to put forward this idea that to be white is better or to be fair is better. 
So when they say skin whitening or skin lightening or all of these things, uh, what they're actually doing is uh, contributing to systemic racism or, or something like that. Uh, but again, you know, the name is not the issue. If, if the issue is the effect, then get rid of the products themselves. If the issue is that we don't want to put forward this idea that to look whiter is a bit better, to have your skin whitened is, is better, then why not get rid of the products? But it, it's completely half-assed as it always is because you've got companies that they want to do the bare minimum to say that they're doing it, to say that they're woke. And by the way, on the weekend, I had to do what no one should have to do, which is explain to my parents what woke means. Because like as I'm doing it, I'm like, because they hear this word and they're like, you know, what is this thing? And, and again, it's a reminder that Twitter isn't real life. Uh, but I, I'm trying to like explain this thing. And as, as I do it, it just reminds me of, of how just ridiculous it is. And I'm having to like ex seriously explain this thing that actually is not a serious thing and actually doesn't make much sense on its own. But I think I got through it. I think they know what woke means. Now, I'll tell you who else is woke. Uh, the Ontario Liberal Party is uh, going woke right now. They are changing the rules and lowering the nomination fees to ensure more female candidates. This is according to a Globe and Mail article from Laura Stone. Uh, in the 2022 election, Ontario's Liberal Party, which was the, the governing party for about 15 years, uh, is going to look to get more female candidates running. They're going to run an aggressive search campaign and, if necessary, restrict it so only women can run in certain nominations. And this was something that uh, the new party leader, Stephen Del Duca, had promised. If you're a woman, you will get a lower registration fee. And you will also, if you're under 30, get a, a lower registration fee. And what's happened here, I'm, I'm, this is just so ridiculous, that they are going to <laughs> have females have to pay 50% of what males pay. So if you want to be a candidate, you have to pay a, a $2,500 filing fee. Uh, when I ran for the, the Progressive Conservatives in Ontario, I don't remember the exact amount, but it was something like that. Uh, you've got to pay that fee. And, and it's basically going towards background check, a bit of an insurance policy to make sure you're committed to it. Women will have to pay $1,250. Candidates under the age of 30 will only have to pay $500. If you're a woman under the age of 30, I don't know if you pay $250 or $5. I, I don't know. Uh, they're also going to create a candidate search team led by three women to encourage more women to run. That I don't find it as a bad idea. If you're wanting to get more diversity in your candidates, you want to give them the opportunity. I think recruiting and, and saying, hey, just so you know, have you considered? That's fine. But the part that I, I don't like is that there is going to be a plan in place that the leader can notify a riding association that they have to draft a plan, quote, that includes only female nomination candidates, unquote. So if you are a riding association and let's say you've got, you know, a couple of males that are qualified that are uh, wanting to run and a woman who's qualified who's wanting to run, the party may say, oh, you know what, uh, in uh, the riding of Toronto Danforth, we need a woman. So uh, only women can be in this nomination race. And the two guys are like, uh, okay. And, and again, if they're woke, they can't complain about it. They have to just start knocking on doors for the females. Uh, and again, th this is a huge problem right now because oftentimes we hear, and there are reports that come out every year and every election cycle about a lack of representation of, of women in politics. 
And if you look at the House of Commons makeup, I forget the the exact number, but women are a minority in the House of Commons, and they are in, in most provincial legislatures. But the problem with all of these remedies to correct it is that they fail to understand why that is the case. It's not that women don't run and women can't win. It's that fewer women run. And when women are running, a lot of the times they are a minority of overall candidates. And it's not because uh, people are, are in nominations voting for the man over the woman. It's because a lot of women aren't putting their names forward for it. Same as when you look at representation as panelists on TV and radio. Steve Pakin did something about this a few years back, and, and he had said that the agenda, his show, was having trouble getting 50% women on the show. And that was the goal, 50% women. And they reported that women would be uh, more likely to say, ah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm busy or I have to look at childcare needs or I'm not the best person for this. And women were declining and they were trying to figure out how do we empower and encourage more people to do it. But you can't drag people into something that they don't want to. You can't drag people in. So if women are not choosing this for whatever reason, there may be some cultural factors there. Maybe it's a fear of sexism. Maybe it's uh, that they're in a, a child. Maybe it's that they're the primary ch child care provider in their home. And that is in and of itself something that's coming from a, a place of, of sexism, if you want to go down that road. But if they're not doing it, you can't force them to, and you certainly shouldn't take away all of the male competition to manipulate a, a path forward for women. And that's where this has gone now. So now that tokenism has become just something that they take pride in, this goes far beyond what the federal liberals did even uh, when Justin Trudeau was elected, which is to do the gender parity cabinet. This is now saying that we're going to completely take people out of the running in certain constituencies because we need to meet this uh, benchmark that we've set, arbitrarily or not, to have more women candidates. And the thing is, is that they can do this in a way that makes them look hip and makes them look woke and, and makes them look like they are progressive, but all they're doing is, is now making women tokens in the same way that CBC, whose policy uh, by 2021 is to have uh, minority candidates uh, promoted at double the rate they are now. It turns people into tokens and it takes away worthiness, qualifications, merit, all of these things that a great many women possess. And let's look at the Ontario Liberals, for example. Kathleen Wynne, who was, by a lot of standards, a very unpopular premier by the time she left office, was still a female lesbian premier of the largest province in Canada. Whether you like her or not, that is a trailblazing line item in her biography, that she did that. She overcame sexism, she overcame homophobia, uh, she ran her party, she ran an election and won, and then eventually she lost in, in 2018. But does the party that had a female premier need to bend over backwards to prove that it's doing more to recruit and retain women? I mean, if they want to, fine, that's their choice. But they already have proven that, yes, women can, without these measures, rise to the top of the party and win. The deputy premier, by the way, Deb Matthews, a woman. Now, I've I've got my own uh, grievances with Deb Matthews that have nothing to do with her sex. Uh, we've got a bit of a history. I can overlook that right now and say, yep, she was a, a successful uh, female, rose up through the ranks, was health minister, was deputy premier. None of that came about through having these little tokens that, oh, well, women can't pay the full fee, and oh, well, women can't run against males in nomination. I mean, how patronizing is that to women? 
It's massively so. And this is now what's passing for progress in Canadian politics, or certainly in Ontario politics. We've got to take a break. When we come back, closing things out here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I want to talk just before we wrap things up today about what I think is one of the most irresponsibly reported stories I've seen throughout the wake of all of the Black Lives Matter protests, riots, demonstrations, and all of this. And it involves a couple in St. Louis who did what many Americans do when they feel their home might be threatened. They pull out their, by all accounts, legally owned firearms. And what do you know? It worked. People kept walking. Now, this is how the story is reported. Reported. St. Louis couple point guns at peaceful crowd of protesters calling for mayor to resign. That's in the Washington Post. In uh, CBS News, St. Louis white couple aims guns at St. Louis protesters. And if you look everywhere on Twitter, people are taking aim at this uh, angry white couple violently threatening people that are protesting peacefully. Uh, what actually happened here is the guy pulled out a, a semi-automatic rifle. Uh, the woman pulled out a handgun. What had happened is they were minding their own business on their street in a gated community that the protesters had already stormed. The protesters were heading towards the mayor's home because they were going to demand her resignation. It's not peaceful when you are already breaking down a barrier, to not a metaphysical barrier or a literal barrier to get into a gated community, and you're on a private driveway, not a public road, as some of these videos uh, make it out to be. And what happens is these people are thinking, oh my goodness, this is our home. For all we know, they're coming here. Who knows? We're going to stand out and tell them that we're not going to have any of this. And you know what? It worked. No one got hurt. They didn't get fired. And you better believe the protesters kept their distance from those two people. Now, whether the, the woman might have had a better uh, trigger discipline or not than she did uh, is one question. Uh, the guy, it seemed like he was fine standing at the ready without pointing his gun at anyone, without putting people in harm's way. Uh, the protesters, you don't know if they're armed or not. I mean, everyone's saying that, oh, the uh, there was the one story here from the uh, the Washington Post that I mentioned that says uh, the protesters were armed only with posters and chants. Well, first off, you don't know that. When you hear a loud mob of people that are on your street when they aren't supposed to be there, you have no idea what you're dealing with. You have no idea what's going to be happening. You have no idea. All you know is that you've seen videos in the last few weeks of this place burning, that place burning, this place being torched, this guy being killed. And I understand anyone wanting to be a, a bit protective of their home and of their family. So good for them for standing up for themselves. Good for uh, Missouri for having the right for people to do that. And shame on all the media that wants to vilify someone standing guard over their home. Because yes, peaceful protest is a right. But the fact that so many of these so-called peaceful protests have been violent uh, tells us that you never know. You never know. It's Schrodinger's protest. You don't know if it's going to be peaceful or violent, so you have to assume it's going to be either and both until you know otherwise. And you know what? In a, a society where people have to protect themselves because police aren't going to do the protecting and they can't in that quick turnaround time, uh, of course, I stand by someone who says, you know what? I'm going to stand guard outside my home. They didn't fire a shot and they didn't need to. Being there was enough. 
And when I say police won't protect you, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not making a slight at police officers, by the way. I'm saying there are some parts of the U.S. right now, like in, in Seattle's Chaz, where police have said, we're, we're walking back, we're not going to govern this area. You've got, uh, in other cases, just simply a, a matter of timing. Police can't get to you uh, before the damage is done. So they did what any good citizen would do. Uh, they didn't harm anyone, they didn't threaten anyone, but they said, if you make a move on us, we are going to defend ourselves. And the media hates that. The media hates that because now these protesters who were storming a closed street to harass someone at their home are just, oh, they were just chanting. They were just singing. I mean, who cares? They, they weren't doing anything wrong. Well, the fact that you never know if that is going to change in the last few weeks is, I think, why people should have a right to defend themselves and do. And I'm glad that no shots were fired. I'm glad that no shots needed to be fired. I don't like that it has to come to this, but I don't blame the people who have seen the carnage and have seen the wreckage on uh, TV news for saying, I don't want our house to be one of those. We've got to wrap things up. My thanks to all of you for tuning in the show today. We'll be back in just a couple of days' time. Thanks, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.